Thank you for listening to this talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Okay. Whoa. So I think we'll begin here. So I'm going to be talking about this series of two prints. So my name is Russell Kelty. I'm the Associate Curator of Asian Art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And this is obviously Samurai Exhibition, which is on until the 28th of March this year. And just a reminder that you can actually go online to the gallery's website and check out the online publication, which was funded by the Japan Foundation. Uh, has essays by artists and scholars in Australia, Japan, and the United States. So it's an interesting read. And actually, a lot of it's based on the material and works of art in this, in this exhibition. So you can check that out. I would also say that if you're looking for more information on these prints, um, as well as the gallery's Japanese collection in general, A Golden Journey from 2008 by James and Amy Rotten Newland are, is a fantastic read. And she speaks about these two prints in an essay in the book. So it's in the bookshop. You can check that out as well. So I think this is going to be my last talk on the Samurai exhibition. And I thought it'd be great to do the last one actually in this first gallery, 21, because 21 is all about the changing image of the samurai. As we've talked about before, the samurai ruled Japan for, from 1185 all the way to 1868, and their influence continues to kind of imbue Japanese culture uh, with a certain sense of warrior and martial valor and so forth and so on. And so in this gallery, I wanted to present images of the samurai. Remember that a lot of the heroes and villains of the samurai associated with the samurai, you know, were, were around when there was no kind of contemporary pictures of them, no photography, no nothing. So the images we actually have, particularly in prints, are fabricated. They're based on tales that we know, much loved, and constantly reinterpreted on stage and now screen and in theaters throughout time over the entirety of, you know, that six, 700 year period. So in this gallery, I'll just walk you through because it was a recent changeover. On the back wall there, we have images of revenge or the vendetta. So of course you have the Chushingura or the 47 Ronin, the tale of the loyal 47 Ronin, one print by uh, Hiroshige, uh, as well as other vendetta tales. On the wall with the Michael Abbott gallery, if you look to the West, you can see images of samurai warriors as well as samurai women. And these prints take place after Japan kind of becomes a modern nation uh, when there was some revolts in southern Japan. So you see men and women, uh, both samurai men and women, which is fascinating. In the cabinet, uh, in the middle of the room, you can see an image of uh, particularly Empress Jingu, uh, ancient uh, empress of much lore and found in the oldest annals of Japanese history around the 7th century they're written, and she becomes this prominent figure, a warrior figure who, while pregnant, invades Korea, takes over Korea, and then goes back to essentially give birth to her son who will become the emperor of Japan, so quite an important lady. Uh, on this wall to your, I guess this would be the southern wall, you can see images from the tale of the Heike, and if any of you have been in the gallery before, the Samurai Show, you would have noticed that there were these two fantastic golden screens on this wall before, which are now been taken down for, uh, for conservation reasons. And those images are, are related to those, and they were created during the late Edo and early Meiji era. So 
these ideas that the images of the samurai continue to pervade our culture as well as Japanese culture is really truly alive and in this gallery. And then of course on the back wall, um, you can see the famous writer Yukio Mishima who um, considered himself a bit of a samurai, sort of. He was also gay, he was kind of this iconoclast in Japanese society, uh, almost a Nobel laureate who committed suicide on the steps of the National Defense building in downtown Tokyo in 1970, which caused a huge kerfuffle about what the samurai means in Japanese culture, what Yukio Mishima means in, in Japanese culture, and kind of reverberates down to the present day. So we can see this great continuum of images of samurai all the way into the 20th, mid-20th, and late 20th century. So they matter. They still matter. But today we're going to be talking about this wall in particular, and these two prints, uh, which are actually probably two of the best prints in the gallery's collection. Um, if you look closely at them, they have fantastic color. They have beautiful designs. They're very evocative and bombastic. And even if you read them closely, they're seditious. Now, if anybody would know something about sedition, I think it would be an American after the past months or so, or four years. So I, this is a very fun read for me. But the artist that we're going to talk about is Utagawa Kuniyoshi. And he lives from 1797 to 1861. And his life spans the kind of height of Edo, downtown Edo, which was about a million people, circa 1800, one of the biggest cities in the world, with a voracious and highly literate population that loved prints and printed books, all the way almost to the end of what's known as the Edo period, which is 1615 to 1868, when Japan was under duress from Western imperial powers such as Britain and America with their steamships kind of running past the coast of Japan and freaking out the Tokugawa shogunate who ultimately collapse and modern Japan is born. He is, I think, one of the great four of the 19th century. You have, of course, Katsushika Hokusai who does the great wave, fantastic landscape prints. You have Utagawa Hiroshige, which is on the back wall there. You have Utagawa Kunisada, and of course you have Kuniyoshi, and he is most well known for his warrior prints, prints of heroic uh, warriors in history and relatively sort of contemporary, um, known as Mushe-e. And he is really, he's really an innovator in not only design, but also providing his prints or imbuing in his prints a sense of psychological tension. So there is a sense of modernity in his prints. They're not only the height of design and fashion and beautiful, and they kind of evoke this amazing death and tribulations of the samurai. If you look closely with the designs, not only the facial features, there is a sense of psychological, an investiture in, in the psychological aspect of each of these characters. And you have to remember that none of these characters would he have ever seen. So he would have based the faces, the postures, possibly the way they were acting on previous prints by well-known print artists of Mushe'e, as well as his own particular sense of creativity, uh, which was quite sophisticated and quite sensitive. Now to understand these prints fully, because I'm going to pick them apart a bit, the interesting kind of seditious aspect of them, we have to understand the world in which and the history of the samurai to a certain extent, particularly as it pertains to Kuniyoshi, and we'll get, I'll get onto his biography a little bit later on. But when we think of the samurai, obviously we think of the tale of the Heike, great epic tales in the 12th century, 
But his story really is about the formation of this Edo period, the peaceful Edo period. And so you have to understand in the 16th century, Japan was a mess. There was interesting warfare between these rival lords all over the place. It was hard to travel anywhere, it was hard to move, lots of problems with food supply, famine, all of these things. And what happened was, eventually, eventually there, you know, there were three warlords who managed to cobble together enough forces to bring the country, the archipelago, together finally. And their names are Oda Nobunaga, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and Ieyasu Tokugawa. And these guys, you know, the lore and myth associated them continue to perpetuate through the ages, and particularly during his time is quite important. There's a couple ways to understand their character, which, you know, often reference in school and so forth like that. It said that, it said that Oda Nobunaga, he pounded the rice, so he pounded it into submission. Toyotomi Hideyoshi kind of formed the balls, and then Tokugawa Ieyasu actually ate them. There's another great anecdote to describe these three characters. The first, it says, if a bird will not sing, how will each of these characters in history, these warlords, make it sing? And it said, Oda Nobunaga would kill it. Toyotomi Hideyoshi would try to seduce it. He was quite a seductive character. He's very good with using his words and language. And it said that Tokugawa Ieyasu would wait. And that's exactly how the country came together. Oda Nobunaga, he really kind of brought it together. It was fully unified with Hideyoshi, and then Tokugawa ended up ruling for 260 years. And it's the second one, Hideyoshi, that Kuniyoshi becomes quite fascinated by, and the populace generally becomes fascinated by. They were all connected because they were all associated with this unification of Japan, but Hideyoshi became a kabuki character, he became much loved by the populace of Japan because he rose from nothing and became this amazing general and unified Japan. And Kuniyoshi, this series, which is about 50 prints in size, is actually a tribute to Hideyoshi. Now what you have to understand is at the time that these were created, the Tokugawa shogunate was very sensitive about talking about anybody else other than the Tokugawas. So they, anybody who was doing prints, historical prints of warriors, had to be very careful about the way that they actually presented them. It was said in, during Kuniyoshi's time that you couldn't actually depict contemporary events. You'd be put in jail. You couldn't depict anything about the Tokugawas. And you couldn't depict particularly images of Hideyoshi because he was their great rival to a certain extent. And they wanted to essentially expunge the history of Japan of Hideyoshi. Now, prior to Kuniyoshi, we have to understand where Kuniyoshi lived. He lived in downtown Edo, Nihonbashi, which you can go to today, from which he used to be able to see Mount Fuji, but now just a bunch of overpasses and yucky rivers run through it, so not so beautiful today, but still interesting. Um, during that time, Edo, you know, during the Edo period, Japan became a peaceful place, prosperous, and art flourished. The print itself, we may recognize it today as a fine art, but prints in and of themselves were actually for the lower classes. It was the screens and hanging scrolls that the samurai, the high-ranking samurai loved. They may have been aware of these and worried about them as a kind of tool for sedition uh, amongst the lower classes, but they actually probably didn't look at them that often nor have collections of them. 
You have to remember that prints were created probably for the price of a bowl of soba noodles, so very inexpensive. It was expected that they probably would get lost and dirtied and trampled. Uh, so thousands upon thousands of them were printed up. And Japan during this time, the print culture of Japan is quite important because the military rulers created a great roadway system to essentially control the country, but this allowed things to travel throughout Japan, throughout the realm. And so publishing was huge. And Japan had an amazingly highly literate population. So publishing was a massive, massive event, traveled everywhere. So pictures of, and tales of the samurai traveled throughout Japan all the time. And so print artists uh, such as Kuniyoshi had you know, a waiting audience, kind of voracious literary audience, waiting for them to create the next print. Prints in and of themselves, unlike paintings in Europe, weren't created simply by one sole person. Kuniyoshi was probably contacted by a publisher who would have said, hey, look, there's a great interest in prints of so-and-so. Can you, can you create a print? So he would draw them up, sketch them up. He would send that to the block cutter. They would paste that on a block of cherry. They would carve it out. And then from that point forward, they would decide exactly which colors would go where and so forth and so on. So it was a community event. And that really influenced the way that these prints came out, the way they were designed, the colors that, that you see upon them, and influenced the, the design aspect of them, which was quite, quite important. Kuniyoshi himself was born in 1797 uh, in downtown Edo in this great melting pot, this great cosmopolitan urban space, to actually a silk dyer, a textile designer. And you can see when you look closely at these, and people have often commented on this, that his detail in the textiles that he represents is actually quite unique and quite vibrant and quite beautiful, and this may have been the reason for that. When he was young, it was said that he often read what are known as ehon, or picture books, illustrated books like today's comics. And he would often draw, I can just imagine him sitting on a tatami mat, drawing with a spare piece of paper the heroes and so forth that he saw in these illustrated books uh, from the 18th century. And it's said that around 11 years old, somebody recognized the beauty of his drawings and his, he became a pupil of uh, the Utagawa school, which was one of the major schools at the time. Hiroshige came out of the Utagawa school and obviously Kuniyoshi came out of the Utagawa school. He was quite a prodigious artist in the school he took on pupils himself, and at the age of 14, they actually gave him his name, Kuniyoshi. From, part of his name was taken from his master, Toyokuni. He had a bit of a difficult time in the 1820s and 1830s. He didn't sell that many prints. He didn't design many. And it was said that he actually became, for a little while, a used tatami mat repairman and, and vendor. So, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a great artist yet, but he was getting there. In the 1820s, uh, at the in invitation of one of his friends, he created a series of prints about uh, Chinese, a, a tale of Chinese kind of Robin Hood characters called the Tale of the Water Margin. And this is really where his career took off. He had, his designs were noted for their vibrant color, for their kind of bombastic style, and their personal interest, the interest in the inner psyche of the actual character. Again, he was drawing these characters which were deep in history, Chinese history, from his own particular creativity. And so that was, he was imbuing them with a new sense, contemporary sense of vibra vibrancy. This series uh, of these tales of the water margin, or of these band of 
of Robin Hood-like characters appealed to the people of Edo at the time. It's the 1820s, Japan is starting to, you know, it's starting to unwind. The control over the populace is starting to unwind. This great society that the Tokugawas had created with the samurai at the top, the farmer in the middle, the merchants and the artists at the base was starting to flip where the merchants and artists were actually becoming more wealthy, they wanted more rights, they wanted to be able to show their wealth in public, they wanted to be able to you know, be at the height of the samurai as well. And it appealed to this audience that was seeing the collapse and the end of this Tokugawa shogunate. And so you know, it had many Confucian values and imbued in it, kind of fealty and uh, fidelity to one's lord, and it was a huge success. Contemporary commentators at the time said they had never seen something so brilliantly beautiful and interesting in terms of composition uh, and so forth. And so Kuniyoshi started to rise in the world of prints, and it's really with this set of prints that he establishes himself as a dominant figure. Now, this, these are created from 1848 to 1850, and what happens in the early 40s is quite an intriguing, has, a, has a quite an impact on what he designs and the, the subjects that he designs. In 1842, the shogunate to try and control again this, this ship that is getting out of hand, this population that is, is kind of getting out of hand and everything is coming apart, they invoke or they set about putting out a, a series of edicts called the Tempo Reforms in 1842. And part of these reforms directly dealt with publishing, what you could publish, when you could publish it, and you know, essentially the subject matter you could publish. And so I have actually the, the edict here, and I'll just read it because it's fascinating. So it says, producing single sheet prints of kabuki actors, prostitutes, and geisha, known as brocade pictures, is detrimental to public morales. It is forbidden to sell either new examples or existing stocks. In this case of illustrated novels, uh, the following are wasteful and needlessly expensive, intricate designs, likenesses of actors, themes relating to kabuki, the use of color printing on covers and wrappers. Existing stocks of this kind must not be sold. Actors' likenesses and kabuki themes must cease. Works should be composed in accordance with the values of loyalty and fidelity to promote virtue among children and women, when new examples are printed, they must be presented to the senior city officials for his approval. So anything that was printed needed to abide by these laws and needed to go to censors to get their actual seal on it for approval to sell. And so it's in this context, and this decimates the kabuki theaters, it decimates the actual print uh, cultures, and not only in Edo it has an impact, but also Osaka and Kyoto. And it's with this that Kuniyoshi thinks, well, what is more kind of, what evokes military valor, bravery, fidelity more than heroic tales of warriors? And so he embarks on this project where he creates these 50 tales. Now, what's fascinating is all of these portray 16th century warriors. But all of them portray warriors associated with Toyotomi Hideyoshi. But it's not readily visible. It's only when there's only slight details that allow you entrance into this. But anybody who would have been reading these at the time would have understood exactly what he was doing. He was making a very political comment about the existing regime. 
And you know, this, if they had found out, this could have gotten him in an exceptional amount of trouble. So I'll just walk you through uh, some of the, the portions of these, because it's, it's interesting just to know how Japanese prints are read and what to look for. So all Japanese prints obviously are created from multi-blocks of wood, probably cherry wood, on mulberry paper. And they usually have the title in a cartouche on the right-hand side. They have maybe uh, some other information, such as the story. This one has a biography of this particular individual. And then the artist's signature at the below, their seal, and then censor's seals on there as well. Now, if you look at this, the title of it in Japanese is Tai Heiki Euden, which means essentially heroic valor of the Tai Heiki. Now, the Tai Heiki is actually a 14th century tale about samurai in southern Japan, but it implies that it's about Hideyoshi. Taikoki is a kind of biography of, of Hideyoshi. Now, the character on the actual print is identified as Sasai Masayasu, but in actual reality, it's Sasai Narashige, who's a historical character. So, uh, again, associated with that late 16th century when Japan was becoming unified. So he's, he's talking about things he shouldn't be talking about. He's talking about Hideyoshi. He's talking about the war that led up to the unification of Japan. And he's actually using the seal or the crest of Hideyoshi down here at the bottom as his own seal. So he's being, open, he's being openly provocative. He's, he's almost wishing that you know, some censor or somebody from the Tokugawa regime would come and you know, kind of say, what is going on here? Now, if you look closer, it actually has the seals of the um, censors themselves, two seals, as well as the publisher's printed mark. If you look closely at the print, you can see that it is this, you know, there's this uh, Sasai Masayasu. He's 15 years old, as the biography tells you on the print. He's in a hail of gunfire and smoke. He, there is an indication that he may not walk away from this because he's dropped his banner, his kabuto, his helmet, and he's just wildly flailing. Now, if you look at it closely, this is, these, this, these gunfire is you know, almost contemporary. We can imagine watching a manga or an animated cartoon where you see the actual trail of gunfire and this blaze of smoke. And if you look even closer, you'll see that his face is highlighted. And when I saw this and was reading about it today, I started looking at, you know, the great uh, painting by Goya, the 5th of May or the 8th of May, where that series of kind of protesters are sitting there with that guy standing up, there's that light box, and then the soldiers darkened off in the corner who are about to shoot. And I couldn't help thinking, making this connection between the two, the psychological intrigue, this wickedness of this print, this 15-year-old boy who's fighting on the losing side, will ultimately, his life will be taken uh, during this, this kind of hail of gunfire. He's being ripped apart in this moment. It's amazingly contemporary, and yet it's 150 years old. It's fascinating. You know, and I just think about Kuniyoshi as a child, sitting on the tatami mats, looking at these 18th century books of heroic warriors, writing them down, cross, you know, maybe putting tracing paper over the top of the book and tracing the lines of the actual warriors. And so he's, he's a consummate creator of heroic warrior imagery. The second print is here, and this is uh, Saito Kuranoshin Toshikazu. And it has the same seal on the side, biography, the character's name, all the same. <coughs> Uh, indications that the other one does. And again, this isn't Saito Kuranoshin Toshikazu. It's actually a real figure who lived in the 16th century 
his name slightly changed so that nobody will, you know, it's a bit of a subterfuge, uh, and depicts him as he's escaping, uh, trying to escape the field of battle. Um, the, apparently he was, he was in the field of battle, his, he escaped luckily, and he went to see his former wet nurse in Kyoto. He found out that his lord had been killed on the field of battle and that his family had committed suicide, which was often the case in Japan during this period in the late 16th century. And so he actually seeks revenge on the lord that had killed his lord. And in the act is actually caught. This print depicts the moment when he's crossing a river and actually trying to shield his face from a rival clan. And so Kuniyoshi, to provide this sense of psychological intrigue and tension, has made these great whirling circles. It's almost like an Alfred Hitchcock movie, you know, this great kind of, I think, vertigo when he falls from the, there's this great psychological tension that's being built up in this. And if you look at the textiles as well, he makes this textile which is, uh, fades from blue, black into red. It's most beautiful. And again, this is one of those moments where this guy is about to be captured, probably beheaded, killed. And we have this, this, this moment in this print. Kuniyoshi is capturing something 170, 150 years before, which we understand as like contemporary television or theater today. You know, this is something we could imagine as a clip promoting a movie. It's so beautiful, it's so evocative, the colors are so hot. It's hard to imagine that this is 150 years old. I mean, I just, when I look at it, I can't. Because even though these colors were steadfast, because by this time they were using a bit more chemical aniline dyes from Europe, uh, still, to imagine that this piece of paper with this printed material on it, printed colors on the top, has lasted this long, is actually uh, gives me a great sense of nostalgia and, uh, you know, uh, sensitivity. Now, as he is dying, as is often the case with samurai, he's given the opportunity to write a farewell poem. It's kind of your farewell to the, to the world, and really, it evokes these two aspects of samurai culture. One, the martial virtue that you're supposed to practice every day with your swordsmanship, your archery, so forth. And also the cultural values that you're supposed to practice every day, such as tea, writing, poetry, haiku, things like that. And so I wanted to just read you the poem that he writes, uh, which is quite beautiful. And we don't know that these farewell poems were actually the poems that they wrote. We're hoping that they are, but it's still quite beautiful, and I like to think that he wrote it. So I'll read it in Japanese first. Kite iku, suyu no inochi wa, miyake yo no, asu o mo matazu, hino oku no mine. So this translates roughly as, vanishes life, like the dew after a brief night, morning does not wait, the peak of the mountain, the sun already on top of the hill. So he's essentially saying, well, my time has come, and now it is about to go. And so I wish you farewell, farewell to the world. And I think that is quite a beautiful, you know, addition to this print, and you can see the poetry right on the corner here. So what happens to our artist Utagawa Kuniyoshi? Well, after this series, which runs from 1846, 1847 to 1850, he becomes a much more well-known artist. He opens up a studio himself. Uh, he has apprentices, some of which are women, as Japan is changing. Uh, so, is, so is the print uh, studios. And he lives to about 1861. So right before, uh, right after, about seven years after, the Americans show up in Edo uh, and forcibly uh, open Japan, for lack of a better word, force treaty ports on Japan, 
and Japan essentially becomes a modern nation. Now what's interesting is, is that the pupils of Kuniyoshi carry forward his style, his particular way of presenting psycholo psychological drama in the form of Tsukiyoki Yoshitoshi, who you see here. And if you look at Yoshitoshi's output, you can see a direct correlation between the two, and Yoshitoshi actually takes it up another notch. He like turns up the volume on the psychological intrigue and the absolute gore factor of prints. He's often considered the last of the great ukiyo-e, the great printmakers of the floating world. And the reason this is is because not only the print artists change, uh, newspapers are introduced, lithography, photography in New Japan, and that changes uh, woodblock prints, but also the community of woodblock print artists and publishers and block cutters and paper makers all changes with these new modern devices. And so we do see that Mushe'e, warrior prints, turn into uh, Senso'e, war prints in the early 20th century as Japan is, is taking, uh, going through a series of con military conflicts in East Asia uh, and Russia and so forth. And so this imagery continues to perpetuate down the line, even to contemporary artists. So this is a contemporary artist, Temyoya Hisashi. This was created in 2005, and we can see elements of this heroic warrior aspect, tension, swirling tension, and you know, myth mythological creatures such as the Tengu attacking him. So this, again, it continues even to today in Japan, and I would say the rest of the world. And so Kuniyoshi, in, in part, has given not only Japan, and the world, an image of the samurai, which we continue to indulge in even to today. So thank you very much and enjoy the rest of the show.